Well, good morning and welcome to our Sunday School class series, Worship, uh, Biblical and Reformed. This morning we'll be looking at part two of what I started uh, last week, which is preaching and corporate worship. So we've been looking at the uh, elements of corporate worship, uh, preaching, praying, singing, reading, um, and then we'll look at the Lord's Supper and Baptism in the next couple of weeks here. But this morning we'll be looking at part two um, on preaching and corporate worship. And if you remember last week, we looked at Nehemiah 8 as that sort of public worship event, which became the uh, prototype for uh, worship in the synagogue. Um, We looked at reading and explaining the scripture in corporate worship, which is what we see done by Ezra, the Levites, and Nehemiah 8. It sort of set a a tempo for what what was, we saw from those texts, was considered worship. It was a public worship event. Uh, there was uh, a preaching at the, or uh, praying at the end. There was a benediction um, at, at the end. And there was sort of these bookends of prayer and a benediction. The context of the worship, the display of the worship, all sort of pointed us to the reality that it, was, it wasn't just a, like a, a, a football event or a soccer game or just Christians getting together. It was corporate worship, um, and it was as unto God. <clears throat> And you, uh, if you remember from last week as well, we talked about, as Nehemiah 8 became sort of the prototype for worship in the synagogue, we talked about that two-lesson model, right? So lesson one being the reading of the law, and lesson two being the reading from the prophets to explain the law, right? There was this sort of scripture interpreting scripture model there. And we saw Jesus himself do that in John chapter 6. We looked at early church preaching and the uh, Lectio Continua uh, practice, which is reading and preaching through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse. We also looked at preachers and preaching in the early and medieval church and saw some of the uh, progress and trends there within that time period. And we saw in that the uh, pattern of Lectio Selecta. So there was somewhat of a transition in some, in some areas from Lectio Continua to Lectio Selecta, which was choosing certain passages uh, to be read along with a sort of predetermined little homily, a short sermon, to be taught along with the reading of that scripture. And that took place more in the medieval time uh, in the lectionary format. And we talked about why that was last week, so I'm not going to reteach that class, but just to jog your memory a little bit. So this week we'll um, look at part two, and we'll be looking at preaching during the time of the uh, 17th century Reformation, 16th, 17th century. Now during this time, preaching, um, it expounded more thoroughly the Word of God. That in part had to do with a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, which we'll talk about which was different from what you see in the medieval age where having this level of education wasn't common. But during the time of the Reformation, there was a level of of education that was available. Um, It was higher than it was during the medieval time and it informed preaching and you see its effects in preaching. Now, when you think of the word Reformation, uh, at least in the historical Christian context, one of the names that probably comes to mind for you is what? What's the first name that comes to mind? Martin Luther. 1436 to 1546. Nice long life. Now, usually Luther is pictured um, as if he was sort of drawn by a caricature artist at Disney, right? He has this, he's angry. He has this mallet-like hammer and he's nailing these 95 theses into, you know, this, this, this wall. It, and that, it's, it's cool <laughs> to see. And it, it, you know, it feels heroic and it pictures Luther more like Thor than a monk. But uh, in actuality, he probably just posted the document um, on the church door or bulletin board, which is a normal way to say, um, this is just a discussion that I wanna have. Um, uh, it, he's, he tends to be sort of um, characterized, that's a word. Uh, by later history, but it was just a a humble posting of a document, those 95 theses. 
Um, in those 95 theses, Luther was uh, posting his, his grievances with indulgences, which we'll talk about a bit to give some context to that. But the name you probably think of first when you think of Reformation is Martin Luther. Now, scholars who study the life of Luther often say that he wasn't intending to start a Reformation movement. He had deep convictions about the sale of indulgences, specifically for the remission of sins. It wasn't just indulgences. Uh, he uh, didn't really have a huge issue with that. It was indulgences for the remission of sins, um, sailing indulgences for the remission of sins. Uh, he wasn't even attacking the pope. He actually speaks favorably about the pope and the 95 Theses. But his main concern with indulgences being sold for forgiveness is that this communicated that salvation was not through uh, faith in Christ alone, but faith plus something else. And as you read through the 95 Theses, you may be shocked by some of the things that he writes, but it's clear from those what his main issue is, and it's the sale of, of indulgences. Um, now, going back to the topic of this class, we want to think about Luther's preaching, right? This class is about preaching and corporate worship. And Luther actually had some criticisms about the lectionary approach that Lectio Selecta, um, selecting certain uh, passages and homilies to be preached from the lectionary. And again, that lectionary approach is basically uh, a book containing portions of scripture appointed to be read on particular days of the year. Now, this was supplemented by a scripture lesson, and this provided some guidance for uh, the preaching monk or priest, and this really became more predominant during the medieval age, during that medieval time. But like I mentioned, Luther had his criticisms of it, but he did, for the most part, stick to it when he preached on Sunday morning mass. Now, <clears throat> Luther did preach and teach outside of Sunday morning mass service. And when he did, he usually preached through some uh, book, and it was a series in, in some book of the Bible. He had a series of sermons on Matthew and John. He has a series on the Psalms, Genesis, and Exodus. But while Luther was doing this lectionary, or preaching course, usually he went through those selected passages verse by verse. So he would explain the text and then apply it. And for Luther, it was more important to present the clear message of the presented or provided text of teaching. And for him, that was reformation enough concerning the preaching. So again, as I walk through these different uh, reformation figures, I'm gonna be highlighting their preaching. Um, what do we see their preaching uh, to look like? What did it model? What were they retrieving? What were they trying to recover? Right, so that's what we'll be looking at specifically. Now, for our next reformer, his name is usually connected to controversies over the Lord's Supper. Uh, he's known for his memorialist interpretation of Christ's words concerning the Lord's Supper. I'll make this a little game. I'll give it, uh, an intro, and then you guess the, guess the reformer. So if Luther was in Germany... This reformer was based in the Swiss Alps. Yes, that beautiful mountainous region on MacBook screen desktops. <laughs> Who's this reformer? Zwingli. Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli, 1484 to 1531. Zwingli was a humanist scholar. After he graduated from university, he spent over 10 years as a parish priest. And he was pretty tucked away. Um, it was actually 12 years he was sort of tucked away reading, thinking, and writing. And he spent his time reading and reading a lot. And he was reading the Bible, different commentaries on the Bible, and he was reading the Patristic Fathers. He really engulfed himself in this. Now, when the Reformation started, Zwingli was called to preach in Zurich. He started his preaching ministry by preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And he did this day after day, week after week, for a whole year. He was preaching, or he was practicing what he understood to be the Lectio Continua, picking up the, each Sabbath from where he left off the Sabbath before, picking up each Lord's Day where he left off the Lord's Day before. Now, he wanted to start his reform in the church by going back to the classical practice of systematic expository preaching. So he spent a lot of time reading one patristic father specifically who 
had a huge influence on his life and ministry and how he understood Reformation. So Zwingli had a series in his um, personal library and it became foundational for his preaching and influenced his preaching. And one of the series in that library was the first edition uh, of the sermons of John Chrysostom, that fourth century patristic father. And we talked about him last week. And it was actually through reading his sermons that he learned how to preach Lectio Continua, verse by verse through the Bible. And his main, it's just interesting to me that his main mentor, um, the man who influenced him most deeply, his common companion lived a thousand years before he did. He was so engulfed in his writing that it just bled out in his preaching. So he was reading old stuff and saw the value in it. But Zwingli was deeply influenced by Chrysostom. And Zwingli, but and Zwingli held to a model that's common for Christian humanists at that period, although they might define it a little differently. Uh, but for the most part, it's the same. And it's actually something that you hear a lot, this motto in, Protestant, in the Protestant Reformed world, especially in discussion about the doctrine of God from classical theists. And the motto was ad fontes. Uh, that means to the sources. We wanted to go back and read the original sources. He wanted to read the patristic fathers. He wanted to, um, as he was thinking through Reformation, um, you could say at Fontes like this. Let us drink from the clear springs of classical Christianity, is another way to put that. And so that was Wingley's driving force. He studied the classical sermons of Christian antiquity. So modeling Ezra, he based his reform on preaching through the law of Christ. And like a Swiss Chrysostom, he preached through the Bible, verse by verse, one book at a time. All right, transitioning to our third reformer. Um, he is another German. As I say this, remember, you're trying to think and then guess who it is. He's another German. If he lived today in North America and came to visit our church, he would introduce himself as John Houselamp. Ring any bells? No? It didn't for me either before I read this. This man was born in Germany in 1452, and this was 10 years before Columbus sailed what? The ocean blue. His name is John, and I'm gonna try to say this right, Ocolampadius. I don't know why I put that flare on it. Ocolampadius. <laughs> He was also a humanist scholar, and he was a sage in both Greek and Hebrew. And he was called to fill the pulpit at the cathedral in um, Augsburg. So this was only a few months after Luther posted his 95 Theses, just to give you some context for him. So John Houselamp, or John Ocolampadius, had a deep interest in studying the classic sermons of Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil of Caesarea. You'll see this pattern as, you, as, we, as I teach through these reformers and their preaching. You'll notice that they're reading very old preaching. Um, they're reading very from, from uh, antiquity and from classic Christianity, and their influence were, influences were deeply in that time. But just like Zwingli, he discovered John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, that patristic father, started to be his mentor and influenced John O, we'll call him, um, as he translated the sermons of Chrysostom from Greek into Latin. So John Ocolampadius, he's translating Chrysostom's sermons, and as he's translating his sermons, Chrysostom is becoming his mentor, and he's teaching them, and he's teaching him how to write, how to preach, how to interpret scripture. And so he was deeply influenced by him. So when John became a preacher in St. Mark's Church in Basel, he followed Chrysostom's pattern and started to work through books of the Bible, one book at a time, verse by verse. And at one point, uh, John O. was invited to, um, to a city council, and he was invited to preach on Isaiah. And when they invited him to preach, they didn't expect what he did. As he was preaching, he was drawing from the Hebrew text which was foreign, or was rare at that time at least, 
because this wasn't something that you would have seen during the medieval time. This was, it was new to them. <clears throat> but he was again trying to follow his mentor, Chrysostom. He was um, trying to follow that, men, follow that pattern of preaching from the word, verse by verse, week by week. <clears throat> now, in the Middle Ages, again, it was very rare that a theologian was able to study the Bible in Greek or Hebrew. But the city of Basel embracing the Reformation is usually attributed to the preaching of John Oculampadius, John Houselamp. His careful, paced, thorough, expo expository preaching really won him favor in the city and won many to the Reformation. Now, one interesting detail I discovered about John when I was preparing this. So as you know, uh, marriage was rare uh, or even forbidden for priests and monks during this time or prior to the Reformation. It was a monkish right to celibacy, right? It was, it was a pious thing for them. So it was seen as extremely um, pious to enter a monastery. In part, it was because you completely gave up the right to take a wife. Now, this was one of the things that the Reformation actually reformed. People uh, often think about the Reformation. They think about the solas. Uh, they think about um, the uh, supremacy of God as the final authority in salvation, and the word is the final authority for the church and all of life. But the Reformation also reformed uh, the church's view of marriage and common work and labor. These things were also seen as good and as unto God. You don't have to be a priest or a monk in order to be seen as doing work as unto the Lord. You can be a common blacksmith. And the Reformation recovered this, um, uh, the beauty, the goodness of common work. But back to John. <clears throat> John did decide to marry, and he married in 1528. So he was really a rebel in that regard. And his wife was a widow named Webrandis who, after John, Oculampadius passed away, married another Reformation person, another reformer, named Wolfgang Capito. After Wolfgang passed away, she married another reformer, <laughs> Martin Bootser. We're going to look at those two figures in a bit, but she's actually referred to now as the wife of the Reformation. <laughs> really interesting. And these guys were friends. At, they, they were close friends during certain times in their lives. So it's just really interesting that this woman married lawfully these, these different men of the Reformation. What was her name again? Um, W-I-B-R-A-N-D-I-S. With Brandis and her last name changed, of course. Somebody should write a biography. I would love to just read her life. <clears throat> um, okay, the next reformer, Wolfgang Capito, 1478 to 1541. So he was also trained as a Christian humanist. He earned doctorates in law, medicine, and theology. Very, very smart. And like his friend, John Oculampadius, he had an in-depth knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew language. He really mastered it. Now, Wolfgang spent time often in discussion with Erasmus, who produced the first edition of the Greek New Testament, Luther and Zwingli. He was often in discussion with these, these men. Saw himself sort of as uh, a middleman peacemaker. Um, uh, Capito was sent to Basel in 1515. There in Basel, he um, was drawn out of his, his mere humanism and that sort of worldview and ideology. He was drawn into the Reformation. When God shifted him from mere humanist uh, to, a to a theological reformer, uh, Capito explained it in this way. I have moved from the side of the pious papists and Lutherans who seek only the soul's salvation and nothing temporal and admonish them to Christian unity as much as God gives me grace. So you see in that sort of his disposition. He, um, he cared for uh, unity. He cared for, for peace. Now, while in Basel, he became friends with Zwingli and a correspondent of Luther as well. 
And so during his time, um, uh, Luther's theology really confused him, he would say. At first, he begged Luther to be less offensive. Um, if you've read uh, much on the Reformation uh, or Luther, <laughs> he has a reputation, right? Um, he would say things <laughs> just with, without filter uh, at times, and he would offend even his friends. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Wolfgang begged him, uh, be less offensive, brother. There's a better way to say this. There's a better way to do this. Um, did, did Luther listen to his friend's advice? No. <laughs> he didn't. Um, I wasn't there, but I think record shows us. Um, lost my place. Yeah, so he, uh, he was, he, he's encouraged him, uh, Luther to be less offensive, especially towards the Pope. So he was a reformer who wanted to preach the gospel while promoting peace. And that often got him in trouble with his reforming friends. Right? So still, he was a very important figure in the Reformation. He saw himself as a peacemaker. Now, Wolfgang's preaching went step by step through the scriptures. He had a careful exegesis. He wanted to draw out of the text what was there and explain it clearly. He believed that the Bible should be explained in a way that allows the Bible to speak for itself. So his preaching was not very charismatic at all. Uh, you probably won't, you wouldn't have seen him on TBN. <clears throat> I used to watch TBN a lot. That's not a slight. I don't anymore, though, and you shouldn't either. Um, we can talk about it after you got questions. Um, it was, his preaching was moderate. It was plain. It was simple. It was clear. He was also involved in publishing the commentaries of his friend, John Oakland-Patius. Now, I'm sure that that influenced his preaching as well. John's looking at Chrysostom, Wolfgang is looking at John, and this, this pattern is sort of developing. <clears throat> and so, through Capito's clear preaching, sharp mind, and gentle disposition, he won many leading thinkers, um, even humanists, to the Reformation. Okay, transitioning to another man, um, where Brandis is third husband, actually. Do you remember who it, who it was? It's Martin Bucer. Martin Bucer, uh, 1491 to 1551. Now, the more I read uh, Bucer's approach to Reformation, the more I really appreciate this man. I'm, I'm being influenced by him. Uh, he seemed very um, this mature, pastoral. Um, he seemed very practical as well. He viewed the Reformation as, uh, he, he said it this way, as a church is reforming, and as those um, officers in that church are reforming, they should sort of, in a sense, turn into the cabinet of uh, Reformation thought, biblical scriptural teaching, pull it off the shelf, and as medicine, put it into a spoon and feed it to their congregations, lest the thing that they need those Reformation teachings and principles become the thing that they hate because of how it's given to them. The very uh, pastoral disposition, very humble, very patient. I just, I really love that. The more I read him, the more I appreciate him. But his pre preaching became known um, through the time, his time in Strasbourg in France. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of uh, sermons from Bootsa, less than a dozen actually. But what we do learn from the sermons and records of those sermons is that Booster would choose a passage of the Bible appropriate to the occasion and context, and then he would explain the text and apply it to whatever the issue was that he was trying to address. So he was connecting scripture with the man and whatever uh, the, the issue was. But Booster's series of expository sermons were really um, the basis for his practical pastoral preaching ministry. Unfortunately, like I said, we can't read these sermons today, but we do know from records that he preached sermons through the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, through John, through 1 Peter, and the Psalms. Um, we also, he also has a commentary on Romans and Ephesians, and what we see in those records is that he followed that Lectio Continua, Continua model. Now, for the Sunday morning uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper, the passage of Scripture selected was taken from the Gospels. Um, in his church and context. 
And this was done in such a way that each gospel was preached through using the principle of Lectio Continua. Now, what's interesting is that often Bucer uh, didn't preach uh, that, uh, that uh, set sort of lectionary model, that Lectio Selecta model, because he thought, he said it was inadequate to fully articulate the scriptures. Interesting. Um, he called them scraps and remnants or bits and pieces of scripture. And from what we know, uh, the gospels were preached through the Sunday morning and the New Testament epistles preached by Boots or someone else in his church uh, Sunday afternoon and evening or at Vespers, which is like a, a Sunday um, evening prayer meeting service. And they were also preached at the daily preaching services. Now, Old Testament books would fill those evenings and daily preaching posts as well, but uh, there was a conviction there to preach through these books verse by verse. Now, because most 16th century churches had more than one service, they had more opportunities to hear the word preached, and they were able to cover more scripture from the pulpit, sort of cover more ground. Strasbourg, where Abuser and many um, other faithful preachers served, had a conviction also about catechetical preaching. That meant that they would preach through the Apostles' Creed, for instance, through the Lord's Prayer, through the Ten Commandments and the sacraments of baptism and communion. Um, and all these were scheduled and preached through so that they could explain in detail to the parishioner what they were doing and why. That was important for them. And so the pulpit was the primary megaphone for the church's teaching on foundation and direction. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Uh, there's a really, there's a book out. It's, it's actually not really a book. Um, I found it at RTS. It's the Patristic Roots of Reformation Worship. And it <laughs> reminds me of like a scroll that's been bound. They don't even have multiple copies of it. I think that was one of the two. Um, but it's a really cool little, little book. Um, it has coil binding and it's nice to hold. It's small and it feels like a scroll. But in that, you read, Martin, you read how Martin uh, Bootser was influenced by the patristic fathers. Uh, he was influenced by the patristic age. He, just like Wolfgang, like um, uh, John O, and others, were reading uh, these patristic fathers. And many of the same patterns you see in the churches in Strasbourg are following um, one set by Cyril of Jerusalem and Ambrose of Milan. You also see the preaching pattern approach of John Chrysostom and Bucer's preaching. So the, the, the reformers relied heavily on the patristic fathers as they were pursuing reformation. And they were trying to retrieve something that they considered to be a biblical pattern that had been, if not lost, at least put on the back burner. They were trying to recover something. And they saw that pattern most practically and helpfully expressed and the preaching of the Patristic Fathers, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, systematic expository preaching. Now, like um, Booster, like, like Augustine, he also wrote an instruction manual for preaching. It was actually originally part of a letter he wrote to a, a friend of his. And the title of that work is An Instruction on How the Sacred Scriptures Are to Be Handled in Sermon. You wrote like a manual on this. It would be like um, Spurgeon's lectures to my students, but just dealing with, with preaching. And that work, Booster gives all these sort of practical insights on preaching. He said that the purpose of preaching is to offer to individuals the grace of Christ in such a way that it is, it is uh, laid hold of, they take hold of it by faith, and realize that in the life of Christ or in the Christian life uh, given by Christ is love. He made the point that since all Christian teaching is in the end the work of the Holy Spirit, the sermon must be prepared through prayer and that the preacher must pray that the Holy Spirit will grant to the preacher the right words and to the hearer the right frame of mind to receive the word of God. Very pastoral and practical. And in that, you see his emphasis on the Holy Spirit as needed in preaching. The, the Spirit works in the life of the preacher as he preps, as he prays, as he reads, as he writes. 
and as he delivers. But not just that, the spirit has to work in the heart of the hearer. It has to soften hearts. He has to open ears. He has to um, open eyes. And Bootser emphasized this in his instruction to other pastors. You must rely on the Holy Spirit in your preaching, he said. Bootser also encouraged pastors to think about the capacity of his hearers. This is why I love this man. He has a lofty view of God, triune God, the Holy Spirit. But he also says, think about the people you're preaching to. Think about their capacity. And what he means is, he would say, you don't want to exhaust them. You don't want to give them so much that they just stop listening. <laughs> you want to be measured and paced to make sure that you're giving them what's appropriate for their hearing capacity. He says, you don't want to exas exasperate their ability to listen and pay attention. Uh, he said, it's one thing to preach to theological students at a seminary, and it's quite another thing to preach to the normal congregation on Sunday morning. So he really did have a concern and conviction about preaching and its relationship to the hearer. And so he recommended that certain books actually be preached during certain times, depending on the congregation's maturity and capacity. So this is what he said. He said, first, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles should be preached. This is because they are most easily understood. Then one should preach the easier Pauline epistles, that is, the pastorals, he called them, and the letters to the Colossians, Philippians, and Corinthians. Romans and Galatians are to be preached to a more mature congregation. Only when this foundation is well established should one proceed to the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. The parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, at least the parts that regard ceremonial law and such things, should be left aside, as well as the apocryphal versions of Ezekiel and Zechariah. That's interesting. That was his approach. Now, I don't agree with that. But you see in that his disposition um, and his careful thought about uh, the, the, the congregation, the hearer. Um, he also had a conviction that the sermon was not the place for speculation, unnecessary controversial preaching, or obscure interpretation. Where's Harrison? Harrison yelled out during a Sunday school class one time. What'd you say? Um, he said, don't go beyond what is written because I was telling a story about something. <laughs> That's a good story. <laughs> but <laughs> I, did, I got totally off track. So you, you helped me, brother. Brought me back. But he said, uh, the pulpit, um, the Sunday morning service is not the place for that. Um, now you see, and this isn't in my notes, but you see um, a wide variety of preaching throughout, from the Reformation to the Puritans to... Um, Spurgeon, um, who was uh, an, an allegorist uh, often and had um, uh, these sermons that he would just <laughs> share these elaborate stories and he saw them as beneficial to communicate the word and he's considered the prince of preachers. Um, so you see God using different men in different ways throughout uh, their preaching ministry. But for Bootser, that was his conviction. Those don't have a place in the pulpit, he would say. Uh, Butcher's counsel was that the sermon shouldn't be used by the preacher to show how clever he is or how innovative he can be. It's not a display of his own wit and cleverness. The sermon should be a witness to Christ as Lord and should make clear to Christians the path of life. He said the preacher should have at the front of his mind these words. These things were written that in that you may believe, and that believing you may have life. John 21, 31. That was sort of his, his tagline. Zwingli, Oakland Patius, and Bootser, they didn't discover preaching. They sat under great preaching, but their conviction about reform preaching was to establish regular, systematic expository preaching. That's, that's what they were trying to do. And it was this approach to preaching that our next reformer introduced in Geneva. That's all I give you about him. <laughs> Who was it? Calvin. Calvin. John Calvin, 1509 to 1584. 
So expository preaching became one of the strongest pillars in the house of Christian revival in the ministry of John Calvin. To him, preaching was a crucial aspect of Christian worship that was according to scripture, and he was safe formed by the example of the early church. Again, he's looking back, this sort of ad fontes principle. Back to the sources. What were they doing and why were they doing it? The sermon, uh, he said, was an act of worship. It's the fruit of prayer. It's the work of God's spirit in the body of Christ. It was a witness to the grace of God in the life of the Christian community. The essential uh, aspect or uh, sort of uh, pinpoint of Calvin's life and preaching is that he wanted to recover and embody sort of this passion for the absolute reality of the majesty and glory of God. Um, and his writings, even in his, he has a, or it's published, a little book called uh, The Little Book on the Christian Life. And it's uh, a little book that's really taken from the Institutes. Um, and even in that book, he talks about uh, the good works of the Christian, how the Christian ought to live, and uh, self-denial, uh, giving, giving himself completely over to the, the reign of Christ and what that looks like in the Christian life. But even in that, and the way that he talks about it, you hear just in his tone and in his approach that we uh, suffer long, we give ourselves over to serve one another at the cost of our convenience, our health, our wealth, and we do it because Christ is supreme and laid down his life for his own. So there's always this connection in his writings with the supremacy of God, even when he talks about things like serve your brother. They're always connected. Now, Calvin was born uh, July 10th, 1509 in uh, Noyen, France, uh, when Martin Luther was 25 years old. Calvin was born when Luther was 25, and when Luther was just beginning to teach the Bible in Wittenberg. The Reformation movement didn't actually reach Calvin in his own life personal life until 20 years, 20 years later. And during his young, young adult years, he was devoted to studying medieval theology, law, and again, the classics. Calvin said that through Reformation teaching, something dramatic happened to him. He said something dramatic happened to me through Reformation preaching and teaching. He writes about struggling to live out the Catholic faith with, with zeal, and then he says this, I was trying to do that when God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire, he says, to make progress. And I think that's just really interesting. I was inflamed with the desire to make progress. And God did bless him to make progress for the glory of God and the good of his church through his expository preaching and Christian worship. Now Calvin recognized and heard in the voice of the minister the voice of Christ. Um, Ronald Wallace um, wrote a book uh, on word and sacrament uh, drawing from uh, Calvin's doctrine of uh, preaching the sacraments and it's a really, really good book. Um, and in that book, you see how Calvin's approach to preaching and even the office of uh, the preacher as occupied by Christ, he says. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll read some of what he said. He said that um, in the voice of the minister is the voice of Christ. This is how the sheep know his voice. The sheep recognize his voice as his ministers preach the gospel. That added this unique reverence to preaching in, in Calvin's mind. He said, we shouldn't so much consider men as speaking to us as Christ by the mouth of the man. When he promised to publish God's name to men, when Christ did that, he had ceased to be in the world, yet he claimed the office of minister as his own and he really performs it, Christ is doing it, by his disciples, he would say. So the voice of the shepherd is going out, the sheep are hearing, and they're hearing 
by the mouth of the minister. And so for Calvin, preaching, as we go in, Ron, preaching the word, Calvin would say, this is Christ preaching to us. He's not here, but this is how the sheep hear his voice. The shepherd, the, the voice of the chief shepherd is in the voice of the under shepherd and the sheep hear. He had a high view of preaching as Christ himself in that office through the preacher. Um, so again, he recognized that the sheep heard the voice through the preaching of the man, the fallen, the sinful, the fallible man. And so this gave him a high view of, of the office. So Christ, he saw Christ at the sower who goes forward to sow in, in that gospel parable. Um, but in that, he would say that the sower is sowing and the sower is Christ. Uh, but that doesn't mean at the same time, Christ as the sower, sower isn't also the preaching, the preaching of the preacher sowing, in other words. So he saw the parable of the sower as accomplished by Christ through faithful preaching, through the faithful preaching of his, his disciples. So there was a view on preaching in the church um, that caused him to regard the words of God as always mighty and power to affect uh, God's promises in the life of the Christian and his commands. Even though the word may be spoken through the frail human words of the preacher, it was still the word of Christ, the voice of Christ. Um, here's a, a sentence from Ronald Wallace. It's a run-on sentence, but it's good. He says, Calvin seldom refers to the preaching of the gospel without speaking of it in such exalted language and without exhorting his readers to prize beyond all other gifts of God to the church, his incomparable treasure set out in our midst by the grace of God, for it is the word which is able to save the human soul. So this gives us a, a small peek, I think, into Calvin's view and conviction about preaching. He didn't value the pulpit for the sake of the pulpit. He valued the pulpit for the sake of Christ speaking through the pulpit, out of the pulpit from the preacher. And so this led Calvin to follow the pattern and example of Ezra. He said that the minister was to preface the preaching of the scripture with prayer that the Holy Spirit would make clear the true meaning of the word in such a way that would bear fruit in the lives of the people. So he's thinking, uh, fruit, uh, we preach, the Spirit blesses, and bears fruit. Not just, it's not just an exercise in, in futility. He's saying, pray that fruit would come, that people would hear and believe and come to Christ. This was also his conviction. <clears throat> And so this conviction about preaching uh, gave him a strong disposition to the lectionary uh, format as practiced in his context. So this is what I mean. He thought that the lectionary, as it was practiced, was cutting up the Bible into unrelated scraps. He saw it as separating the Bible from its natural context. Ministers, as given to God, uh, uh, or given by God to his people in Ephesians 4, should select passages of scripture that were most needed for the nourishment and upbuilding of the church in any particular time. That's what he said. This keeps them from a stereotypical interpretation and allows God to work through the natural context of the word. <clears throat> now, a little bit about what Calvin himself preached. Calvin preached through most of the books of the Bible and he slowly preached his way um, through each of those books. So his practice was to only preach, get this, three to six verses at a time. These are long sermons. <laughs> so he, there's a lot there that he's, he's bringing out. Now, of course, it's not I'm, not, I'm not saying this to say that the preacher has to preach three to six verses. But for Calvin, he saw that as the way for him to draw out, sort of squeeze out as much from the text as he could. Like a rag, a wet rag. He's draining it out. And so he had a paced preaching. He preached 124 sermons in Genesis, 200 sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, 158 sermons in Job, 
176 sermons on 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 43 sermons on Galatians. That's a lot. Now, it wasn't uncommon for preachers during this time to spend a decade in one book. You imagine, I don't know, going off to college at 18 and coming back and you're married with kids, you're 30, and the pastor's in the same book (laughs) he was when you left. (laughs) You probably have problems with that. Uh, But this was common during that time. A couple other notes, some closing notes on Calvin's preaching. What may surprise us about his sermon is how simple they are. Calvin, of course, had a brilliant mind. You can read that in commentaries, institutes, his uh, discussion and dialogue with other other men. Um, He was a genuine and a genius theologian, but his sermons were simple, very simple and clear. He didn't have these very long attention-grabbing introductions, which is a part of preaching like one-on-one if you take a class in seminary. I took that class. I have introductions. I'm not saying this is evil. I'm just, this is Calvin's perspective. He didn't have these very long attention-grabbing introductions in his sermons. He didn't have a lot of uh, illustrative stories, no funny stories from his own life in his sermons. Uh, You almost never heard about himself or any other great author. He didn't even quote a lot of authors in his sermons. He didn't have uh, climactic crescendos or stirring conclusions. He really didn't depend on literary elegance at all for a man who was so brilliant. The weight and forcefulness of his sermons was really found in the clarity of the text he preached. He would get up, he would expound the text, and he would sit down. And his, that was his conviction because he would say, the word doesn't need to be, um, he would say, painted in flowery colors. Uh, the Lord will do his work. You trust the Lord, you trust his word, preach it, and sit down. Trust that the Lord will do what he will do. That was his conviction. He believed the scriptures didn't need artistic colors. His simple and direct style was based on the confidence that he had that the preaching was indeed the word of God. And the simplicity of his preaching was an expression of reverence for him. He said, when you add to it or dress it up, you, there's, a, there's a lack of reverence because you're, in some sense, diluting the pure preaching of the word of God. He would say, you just get up and you preach it. Now, what you will find in Calvin's sermons is that he would quote multiple passages from other parts of the Bible as he was explaining the text. So just like Augustine, he believes scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. As opposed to the first lesson, second lesson pattern, which we saw last week, uh, the first lesson being the reading of the law, second lesson being the reading of the prophets to explain the reading of the law, scripture, interpreting scripture. As opposed to that pattern, um, Calvin seemed to combine them both in one clear sermon, and that was his approach. Now, we won't have time to get into Puritan preaching or uh, preaching in Spurgeon's day. I would hate to be the guy with the church down the street from Spurgeon. No one would come. <laughs> um, we won't have time to look at that. Or modern preaching, which, which we could talk about. There are, are there's great preaching now. But hopefully these past two classes gave us some peek into the life of preachers and preaching, at least from Nehemiah 8, synagogue worship, early church, um, medieval, and reformation. And you can listen back to the first class if you missed that one. That'll, that'll help give some context here, too. But um, as we close, some verses that remind us of what preaching should be. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17. That the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The word of God, preach the word of God is sufficient. In 2 Timothy 4, 13 is instrumental for public preaching. This was Paul's charge to Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself to the reading of scripture and to the explaining of scripture. We saw that, we sort of looked at that in the original language in the class on uh, reading and public worship. 
And lastly, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready. When? In season. Out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. With complete patience and teaching. Right? So Paul is not mincing words with Timothy. He tells him, preach the word. Read the word. Preach the word. Exhort, reprove, rebuke, all those things that the word is sufficient to do. Okay. 9.59. Right on time. <laughs> um, uh, any closing thoughts? Questions? So I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, you know, for Calvin that he had an inflamed desire to make progress because when we, we do tours in um, Geneva, so mm. life of Calvin tours, and so when we're there, we learn about, you know, not only is, was he, you know, a great preacher, but he did have a great impact on society mm. as well. So he laid the foundation for, like, education system, yeah. and also for the whole watchmaking, thing, um, you know, industry, where in Geneva, you see Rolex, you see all these, like, you know, ah, Swiss factories, yeah. and that all ties That's back cool. to Calvin and the French Huguenots in making those watches with precision. So it's so cool to... Not only was he great, was he a great preacher, but he yeah. did so much for yeah. society as well. Yeah, so. amen. That's good. Thank you. I didn't know that. <laughs> you can know It makes sense now. <clears throat> yeah. She does great tours of Geneva. <laughs> you don't want to talk to Kathy. <laughs> Plug. It's so cool because, you know, to learn, you know, we travel a lot, we see it. And mm. then to be reminded yeah. by these, you know, great men. And it's funny because, like, during our uh, dinners for these tours, yeah. each table would be a Reformation, uh, nice. a person of the Reformation, a preacher. So we have, like, a Luther table, uh, a Jean Hus table, a Butcher table, yeah. uh, R.C. Sproul table. Now, you know, so we, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, so these men were, were preachers, and we saw that last week, too. Um, as we look at some those preachers in the patristic church in the medieval time, they were preachers, but they had this uh, influence in society around them. Um, Francis of Assisi, you saw that, and uh, Dominique, you saw the same thing. So, yeah, these men were uh, men of the pulpit, men of the word, and men of the work. Lips and hands. But um, any other thoughts, closing comments? All right, oh, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us uh, a, a record of uh, the church who lived before us, uh, men and women in the faith who stood firm on a biblical truth, um, men who were men, uh, fallen um, sinners, but redeemed by your grace and all can attest to the same thing, that uh, Christ died to save sinners. And you have given us a record of their lives in so many different areas for our own encouragement. Lord, help us to do well to learn from the great cloud of witnesses that surround us, um, not only now, not only in the scriptures, but also uh, in the church and those people of God who live before us, the great household of faith, the household of the elect. Uh, let us learn from them and to grow and to progress in the faith. Lord, bless us now as we go into the sanctuary uh, to gather with the saints to hear the word preached. Help us to listen with reverence and awe, to give our attention to not only the sermon, but the reading of your holy word, the prayers, the singing of, of the saints, uh, the sermon, and the Lord's Supper exhortation. All these things are, these are the ordinary means of grace given to us by you. These are things that Christ has purchased for our good and our soul's joy in him and our progress in the faith. So, Lord, bless us now. I'll cause your word to go forth with power. Soften the hearts of those whom you are drawing to yourself, that they would hear and behold your glory in the face of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.